Well, good morning to you all. Inside. I was thinking I was going to be out underneath the porch roof preaching to cars in the rain. And I was so happy that things developed so that we could be inside for this week. And um, my wife would love to be here with you. You may or may not know that we often go to Guatemala because my daughter's a missionary there. So we were there uh, for the month of February and part of March. And then all of this virus stuff hit the world. And um, you think you have it rough here in Washington, in Guatemala. They really have a virtually a total shutdown. Um, this weekend, in fact, they are under complete lockdown, not even allowed to leave the house for the entire weekend for any reason whatsoever. And that's because they had a few new cases of the virus. I was scheduled, well, we were scheduled to come home about March 24th, and... Um, but the airports were shut and all the borders were closed just before that. So the United States government offered a State Department-sponsored flight out of Guatemala City for $600. And we thought, that is really expensive because we usually fly round trip from Spokane to there and then back for $800. And Laurel and I talked about it. We just thought, this is highway robbery. She said, you go, but I'm staying until I get my regular retail fare flight. She has credits with Delta Airline, and she thought she should be able to come home for about $175. So I took that flight, and uh, it was kind of spooky. Going to the airport in Guatemala City, they wouldn't even let you in the door without a mask. And I thought, boy, this is really severe. And then inside, there were hardly any people except those flying out on that one airplane. Got to Dallas-Fort Worth, empty. I flew from Dallas to Spokane on a third that was, a plane that was one-third full. And from Seattle to Spokane, I'm sorry, with eight people on that jet. And that was just a sign of things to come. Well, don't you know now the tickets that they're offering Laurel to come home are now $2,400 one way. 2400 from Guatemala City to Dallas-Fort Worth. And she said, I will not pay that. <laughs> I said, I will not pay that. <laughs> I'm the breadwinner. Anyway, she's still stuck there. She has a ticket to come home on Mar or, uh, June 17th with Delta Airlines for $375. So I would invite you to join me in prayer that that ticket will not be canceled. And um, if it is, I don't know what she'll do. She's really getting st distressed. So normally she would be with me, but she is not. Well, ladies and gentlemen, these truly are times that try men's souls. I think we thought that before the virus. But now everything is so strange I thought it was really good, some of the things that I read on the internet about other times in history when the church has been afflicted. And in comparison to some of those things, intense persecution that's come upon the church in the early days, the persecution of Protestants in Europe, um, this is small potatoes. 
Martin Luther even said, and I thought this was a good quote, if the government shuts you down because they are against Christ, stand up and be counted. That's my words. If you're shut down because of pestilence, stay home and be shut down. So we have this pestilence, and now we're not sure what the greatest pestilence is, the coronavirus or the governing authorities. America has a lot of things to sort out. And as I thought about what scripture to share with you this morning, my mind turned to Hebrews chapter 12 about running the race that is set before us. And there are some great things in here for us to think about believers that I think apply to the stresses, to the pressures, to the challenges, to the opportunities that these present times offer us. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there as I will. And we'll just read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. I'll read from the New American Standard Bible. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and we pray that you open up the eyes of our heart, open up our minds to receive it as you truly intend it to be received by us, your children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I heard a rumor that someone around here likes the book of Hebrews very much and did some teaching there, so I I hope that I'm not repeating something that has been taught in the last three weeks. Um, Otherwise, if it's beyond that, you will have forgotten it completely, (laughs) and I'm safe. You may know, probably know, that it's called the book of Hebrews because it was written to Jewish Christians, Christians with a Jewish background, people that were very familiar with the law, the prophets, and the writings, uh, well familiar with all the traditions of the Jews. But people who had come to Jesus Christ with that background, having really that background as a blessing and a benefit compared to the Gentiles who may have had no familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures. And yet with that background, there was a challenge to revert to the old ways that they knew. The Jews in the first century, of course, were very much preoccupied with the law and the details of the law. You know how diligent the Pharisees were to keep the law in its second and third permutations. 
They were very much obsessed with the priesthood and with sacrifices, with holy days, especially the Sabbath day. Very focused on Moses. And very impressed with angels, among other things. And the temptation for those believers was to go back and return to a habit of mind that was focused, even obsessed with those kinds of things, rather than being completely focused on the one who had come, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who in every way is preeminent and should be preeminent in our thoughts, in our hearts as believers. Nothing greater than Jesus. More than the law, he is the one that perfectly fulfilled the law, not only in his moral and ethical conduct, but in his very life fulfilled every demand and typology that the law presents to us. He is a greater one than Moses, who, as the writer to the Hebrews said, Moses was faithful in all of his house, but Jesus is a son over the house. And why would you go back and fixate on Moses and be impressed with him when you now have not a servant but a son? Jesus is greater than the angels, as the opening chapter tells us he is a priest like no other priest a priest perfection a priest without genealogy who lives eternally to make sacrifice for us before the father according to the order of Melchizedek no father or mother or genealogy given at all because he is eternal and not only is Jesus the one and perfect and great priest but he is also the greatest sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. And there is no need for the blood of bulls and goats and rams to be offered. Lambs in the altar. For he offered his own holy blood on that cross. Making a sacrifice sufficient for the sins of the world. So if you had all that scriptural background and were familiar with all those aspects of the faith. Why would you ever, ever cease to be enamored and completely smitten, preoccupied and captured by this Messiah who has come, who is our all in all, the wheel in the middle of the wheel, right? Greater than the Sabbath, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, he is our rest. Knowing all these things, why would you ever go back and fiddle around with keeping the law according to the flesh, right? That was the great danger for the readers of this epistle. And the author calls them to keep on keeping on with Jesus, for truly the best has come. Just like it says in the opening verses, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is God's last and best word to humanity. Indeed, God did speak through the fathers and through the prophets. But now in these last days, the writer says, he has spoken to us in his son, and we would do well to pay heed to him and what he has to say. Well, you may say, I'm not Jewish, and I don't struggle with all those things. I realize that Jesus is the greatest and best that God has given in his gifts to man. Ah, but you do have the same struggles as they did. For before we knew Christ and even while we know Christ, there is a great temptation to become distracted by, yea, obsessed with other things. And having by faith come to possess this greatest of all gifts, as Paul said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians. Yet knowing him as we do, possessing him as we do, having his indwelling spirit in our hearts by faith for the Holy Spirit was poured out according to his promise, having all that privilege and blessing and knowledge and awareness, it is possible, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to lose our focus and to become distracted and become interested preoccupied, even obsessed with other things. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I think the book of Hebrews still speaks, and it speaks loudly. For any of us who even know better and who are in the faith, there is a temptation to slip, to slide, to backslide, to fall away, to fool around, to become fuzzy in our thinking and fuzzy in our sight and to forget what we have in Jesus Christ. And so then it makes sense that probably the great theme of Hebrews, other than Jesus himself, is the theme of perseverance, enduring, sticking with it, sticking with him, continuing, forcefully in a life of faith. And so the synonyms that we find in Hebrews for perseverance are endurance, continuing, holding fast. As opposed to the antonyms that we find in the book of Hebrews, the dangers for us of drifting, chapter 2, verse 1, of neglecting, chapter 2, verse 3, of falling away, chapter 3, verse 12, coming short, chapter 4, verse 1, throwing away confidence, chapter 10, verse 35, and therefore ultimately shrinking back in shame, chapter 10, verse 39. Coming short, of the grace of God. And so these are the encouragements and these are the dangers is to stick with it and to press on. And so we come to chapter 12, 
which certainly should be coupled with chapter 11, of what it really is all about and what to focus on in a positive way. And so he begins by saying, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's run that race with endurance. What is he talking about? Well, who is that great cloud of witnesses? The controlling metaphor of these two or three verses in Hebrews 12 is a race. And your Christian life indeed may be compared to a race. You know, it's often called a walk. And we are to walk not as the Gentiles walk, but walk in a manner worthy of our high calling. So which is it, a walk or a run? A walk-run or a race? Some of you don't walk very fast at all, and so how are you going to run a race? Well, it's not either. It's both because they're metaphors. They are things to make us think about the nature of what it means to live for Jesus. And in, in one sense, it's a walk. It's a steady, daily habit of thinking and doing and being that needs to be cultivated and practiced as just the pattern of your life. And we often uh, are amused at young Christians who get so excited they're just bursting at the seams and they just want to race at full bore starting the first hour. And so those of us that are seasoned, we say, now, little fella, don't be so excited. You've got years ahead of us, uh, ahead of you to, to live for the Lord. And so calm down <laughs> and find a pace and learn the ropes and walk this walk. But sometimes we get so comfortable with our walk that we're really just kind of uh, wandering meanderers and get a little slow and unmotivated and even off course. We do need to remember that it's also a race, and a race is a different kind of a metaphor. And so that metaphor controls these verses, and we have here in this description of the Christian life as a race, we have a stadium full of spectators envisioned. We have runners We have a preparation that runners make for the race. We have a call to endurance. And we have a finish line and a prize. And all those things are well known to anybody who's ever run any kind of a race of any kind. How many of you were in track, by the way, as a child? Seven, seriously? How many of you ran the short sprint races? Raise your hand. I'm talking like a 100-yard dash or the 220. We even say the 440. It's all in meters now, I realize, because we're so European. But 100, 200, 400 meters. And then there's the distance runners, which I'll say is 800 meters and beyond. One mile and two mile and 5K and marathons. How many of you are distance runners in school and ran like the mile, for example, or something like that. Very good. How many of you tried to run Bloomsday in Spokane? How many of you walked it? (laughs) Amen, sister. How I love you. I went with a friend who said we ought to run Bloomsday, and having been a runner as a youth, I thought, that sounds great. I ran the first mile, kind of, and then I walked until the last half a mile, and then I attempted to sprint to the finish line came in, I'm sure, in the last 70% of the crowd. 
I know a little bit about running because I did run track and cross country as a kid. And that's the metaphor here. So let's think about the components of the race here that the writer is thinking about. And first, let's talk about that crowd, the, the people, as it were, in the stands, metaphorically speaking. This great cloud of witnesses. So imagine yourself in the Roman Colosseum and you're going to run this great race and it's public and there are people cheering you on. Who is cheering us on in this passage? Well, it's this great company of spectators who themselves have also run this race. They're the saints listed in this great hall of fame of faith in chapter 11 where the writer details the exploits of faith, faith and obedience, faith and action of everybody ranging from Abel and Enoch all the way through Noah, Abraham, Moses, the prophets, highlighting the things that they did Because they believed in God, they lived a life to please God. And though they were not perfect men, we won't call them saints in that sense. They were men of flesh, feet of clay like you and I. And yet because they believed God, they did certain things in their life which counted for them as righteousness, just like with Abraham. We often wonder who wrote Hebrews, and some say, well, it was surely the Apostle Paul. Others say, well, it's so eloquent, maybe it was Apollos. But truly, you have no idea. But one thing I do note is that the Apostle Paul gave as the epitome of faith for an Old Testament believer, the person of Abraham, especially in Romans chapter 4, mentions him again in Galatians, quotes the verse that when God promised to Abraham that he would have many descendants, even though he was old, And his wife was almost as old and as yet barren. It said he believed God and it was reckoned or accounted to him as righteousness. And there Paul presented Abraham as the great example of a life lived by faith and that God truly rewards those who believe that he is. But I note in Hebrews that uh, we are not just given Abraham as an example, but we have a whole constellation of Old Testament heroes who by faith, whether it was Rahab or Abraham or David or the prophets, they too trusted and obeyed. Trust and obey for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. You guys know, and I certainly know as a pastor and now as a pastor of pastors, how vexed everybody gets about trying to figure out faith and works. I found out people really get exercised about this. And we have those saints that love to emphasize that we are justified by faith and all we need to do is believe in Jesus. And if we did nothing else, we are eternally secure and pleasing to God because we have faith in Jesus who gave his life on the cross. And I have many friends who preach that every Sunday and almost nothing else. Just to make sure we get it. That no man is made just by keeping of the law, but we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, just like Abraham was. Amen? 
Love it. Preach it. Always will preach it. But I have other friends. Some of them think they're Methodists. And they say, well, that's all well and good. But you can't just believe and then sit on your hiney and do nothing for God and think that it is well with your soul. It is not okay. Where are the works? Go read the book of James and get yourself fixed in your theology. And I say, well, that's all well and good and true. Thank you, Methodists. In fact, they're both right. And the way that you resolve the dilemma between faith and works is just to say it this way. Real faith really works. Faith works. Faith is not dead. Faith is alive and active. And when it's alive and active in your heart, it's alive and active in your hands and feet and lips and all of your deeds. How this world needs to see at this present time of distress, real Christians with real faith who are really busy running the race set before them to the glory of God. Because folks are so confused now that they need to see those realities. This hall of faith, of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 are great examples to us. And so when we come to chapter 12 and we, the writer talks about this race that we're going to run, he sets them forth, as it were, as people in the stands in the stadium cheering us on in our race. And uh, I've often heard preachers speculate about whether they're actually cheering us on. I mean, is it really literally true that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and Rahab, and everybody else, Moses, is in heaven watching everything we're doing, cheering us on? Irrelevant. But metaphorically speaking, their lives speak. Their lives cheer us on to victory. They are the forerunners who showed us the way to live the life, the life of faith, a life for God. And as you are in your own starting blocks, preparing to sprint for Jesus and excel in his name, how good to think of all those people who if they were here, they would say, Lee, little buddy, you can do just like I did. In fact, the book of Hebrews said these people are worthy of imitating. And as much as we might like to think of them cheering us on, um, really they're just um, models for us to imitate. He says that um, in chapter 6, verse 12, where the writer says, uh, don't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And he's speaking of those Old Testament saints there. In fact, 612 is kind of a precursor to the whole chapter 11 where he gets right to it and enumerates all those examples of faith for us, all those great heroes. And... Um, 
So the writer encourages us to think about all those people that he's talked about in chapter 11 and get ready to run our own race because they are like people in the stadium cheering us on. And in a sense is inviting us to join their ranks. Why don't you, Lee, be like one of those people in chapter 11? That ought to be our great ambition is not to read about those people and say, man, they were amazing. The whole point of reading of the scripture, Paul says in Corinthians, is that their lives and their stories were written for our instruction in these latter days. We who have the great privilege of actually seeing the Messiah manifested on the great stage of life, who know Jesus personally, their lives speak and encourage and are a pattern for us. And we ought not to see ourselves as second-rate people of God and who could never be thought of or counted in the ranks of the Abrahams or the Moseses. You are no different than them. And if you would fully consecrate your own life to God and listen for his still, small voice, you cannot even imagine the exploits that he has prepared for you to walk in, in Jesus' name. We can join their ranks. We can be part of the Hall of Fame of Faith if we will. That's the exhortation really here. Well, there is a race to run. And to be in a race implies effort, intentionality, vigorous exertion, Right? Not just lollygagging, but getting on with it. Digging in your cleats into the cinder on the track. Flexing those muscles and being prepared to burst out onto the scene of your own life and to run straight in your lane towards something great. In fact, that same chapter 6, verse 12, that tells us to imitate those who have gone before us by faith says, don't be sluggish. So there's the antithesis to a vigorously run race is to be a sluggard, to be so unresponsive to the Spirit of God and slow in your obedience and unfocused in your mission that not only will you be in last place in the race, but when the firing gun goes off, when the guy says, on the line, ready, set, go, you aren't even there. You're picking dandelions and looking for a drink of soda. It is a race. And this race is not contrary to having faith and resting. The race is the result of having a genuine faith in God. If you know who God is and what he has done for you, if indeed his Holy Spirit has come to reside within your soul in power, you know the feeling. You cannot help but want to get in the arena and be used by him to be a contender, to be a player, not a spectator, not passive, to be in the race. So there is a race. 
The other part of the metaphorical portrait that is given here is the preparation for the race. And what does the scripture say here? Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, like them, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. What a great picture. You know, when you're running a race to win at the varsity level in high school, let's say the 200 meter, and you want to finish that thing in 27 seconds flat, you do not do it with your baggy sweatpants. You don't do it with your clod hopper training tennis shoes. You don't do it with a baseball cap on and jewelry hanging around your neck, right? What do you do? Get rid of those clothes, man. And I well remember being in high school. And if you were on the varsity level, you got to not wear just the cloth cotton Nathan Hale Raiders t-shirt and your cloth shorts but you wore silkies. We had these silk tank tops with the letters NH for Nathan Hale because we were the Nathan Hale Raiders. Love that revolutionary spirit theme in my high school. I graduated in the year 76 too, so it just matched so well. Anyway, we had silkies, silk tops, silk shorts. And what did you wear for shoes? Not your training Nike waffles, but no, you got on spikes that weighed negative one ounce, right? With really nice five-eight spikes, no socks for sure, no socks. Back in those days, the socks went up to your knee, remember? Cool basketball socks. None of that so that we would be virtually naked. Now, you know, in the ancient days in the uh, Olympics, the runners were naked. And I wondered how naked. It says they ran naked. I wouldn't like to be a spectator in the great cloud of witnesses, any of that. But the idea was the same. For speed, you need to not be encumbered, not be entangled by your own outfit. It's hard enough to run a race and win a race. You've got other runners jockeying for position and who's going to get to that tight inside lane and get the pole position, right? You've got wind and rain and heat, maybe cold. You've got detractors and cheerleaders from the other schools saying, you ain't nothing, you ain't fast. But the greatest enemy for the athlete is the athlete. And an athlete must be disciplined. An athlete must be in control of his own soul. And in every way, mentally and physically, get ready to be in those starting blocks for that race. What a great picture of what is required for us as Christians to be effective for God. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily, he says, entangled us. That is not encouraging. (laughs) 
to think about how my sin so easily entangles me. But it does, doesn't it? So now I want you to think about your life that you're living for God, you guys, whether you're 14 years old or 74 years old here this morning. God has things for you to do, a race to run. And when you think about what he might want you to do and what he could call you to do and what might even be possible for you to do, even in your own feeble earthly imagination, let alone his divine plan and power for you, What do you need to lay aside in your life? What entanglement is there that is bogging you down from getting with it and truly being magnificently useful for Jesus Christ? The exhortation is this. Lay it aside. Get ready to run that race to win. Whatever is heavy, whatever ensnares you, It is not worthy of being part of your daily life. Chuck it, as we used to say. Be gone with it. Be done with you. See it as the enemy, not just of your own soul, but the enemy of your potential and your progress and your service to Christ. Those things truly are the enemy of God and detract from his Glory, the glory that he wants to wring out of your life. Every one of us here has a potential. It varies according to our gifts and experience and place in life and all that. But don't limit yourself because you're boneheaded and are trying to win that race with a 40-pound jogging suit, right? Strip it down, baby. Run. He says, let's run with endurance. And of course, that is the great theme of the book. And we need to not quit, not lose heart, not slow down, not drift away, not slide back, not throw away our confidence, but run with endurance. Purposeful, steady, patient effort that never, ever, ever, ever gives up. Right? We need to be like what Winston Churchill called us to in the Second World War. Let the enemy throw at us what it will. We will never, ever, 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 ever give up. We'll fight the good fight and run to win. I know believers, people of my generation that started when I started. I got saved in 1974. I can still tell you the first and last names of all the guys and girls that were interns with me at Highlands Community Church in Renton, Washington. And every single one of us was going to be a pastor and do great things for God. So now here we are, and we are no longer 18 years old. We are 60-something. It's a fearsome thing. And looking back over those 40 years, the great question is, so who was the pastor Who served Jesus the last 40 years? And if you quit along the way, where did you go off? And how long after your vows and your boasting and your bragging and your planning did you crash and burn and fall down, go boom, and did not rise like the righteous man who falls six times and rises the seventh? Do you think all those guys finished the course? 
I tell you, they did not. About a fourth of them did. Gloriously. Not because they were awesome, but because God is awesome. And he helps the servant of God even in our weaknesses. It is very possible to start a race and not finish. Possible to start a race and not run well. Not finish well. So I'm almost the youngest person in the crowd here. Oh, there are a few exceptions. Thank you so much for coming. But I am 62 years old this year. A young 62, a cheerful 62. But nevertheless, as I calculate, I have more behind me than I do ahead of me. So even I, the young Pastor Lee Kissman, start to think about finishing well and running my race. And what is that race? Don't you? It's a big deal. I mean, I think that's why we all go to church is to contemplate our walk, run, and to find partners in the ministry and let us do well together, right, in our race. Because our Christian life is a public and corporate thing. It is not merely a private affair. The writer says that we are to run with endurance the race set before us. And I just want to talk for a second about the race set before you. What is the race that is set before you? I think we ought to think about that both in general terms and specific terms. There is a race that is set before us that all Christians have. It is the general outline of life that is set forth by the gospel, shaped by the entire scripture, Old and New Testament. And what God requires of us in running our our race, in a certain sense, is the same for every single one of us. To not sin, but to do good, to love righteousness and mercy, and to proclaim the excellencies of his name until we finally go out in a great flare at the end. In general, we all have the same race, but there is a specific course that God has for us as well. And I love to think about this, that God... Great as he is, and as many of us as there are, he knows us all by name. And as Bill Bright used to say of Campus Crusade, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he does. There is a course for you, a race to run, that is your own personal, custom-made race that God has for you. And a lot of you know what that is, what God's greatest mission for you personally. Many of us don't know. And I know some people, they go through their whole life and they just say, Pastor, I just have no idea what the Lord wants me to do. So I just tell them, well, do a little bit of everything and to the best of your ability, cheerfully, and he'll be fine with you. But some people know, like they have a great sense of focus and knowing exactly what God is requiring them to do in their race. And whether you really know or kind of know or don't know at all, you need to run your race with all your might. You can be a generalist, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 
So just try a smattering of things and be awesome at all of them. In fact, when you do that, you kind of do find your sweet spot eventually through experimentation, and you will see what God is trying to do with you. But run that race. The Apostle Paul had a great sense of this. Do you know that when he met with the Ephesians elders in uh, Acts chapter 20, he said to them, I don't consider myself as my life as dear to myself, only that I finish my course and proclaim the gospel of grace because he knew what God had recruited him to do on that road to Damascus had a great sense of what his particular race was, his race course. Also in 2 Timothy, he said the same thing. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. Man, wouldn't that be great, you guys? When they call 911 for you, and they bring that medic car to your house and haul you away, and the church comes and celebrates your life right here as your carcass lays out on a table, and then we very respectfully bury you in the cemetery. That day is coming for every single one of us. I feel it in my bones. Yes, I do. But as you breathe your last, my friends, don't you want to be able to say like the Apostle Paul, I knew my business. My business was God's business, and I did it with all of my heart to the best of my ability. And I have failed a thousand times, but I never left him or the mission he called me to. And I I have finished my course. That would be fabulous. Consider the alternative. Oh no, I'm done. And I haven't done anything. So, okay then, let's run a race. And then he calls us to the finish line in our focus. And as much as we are to be impressed with and to imitate all those people in that hall of fame of faith, what our eye is supposed to be on is the epitome of one who lived a life in obedience and faith, the Lord Jesus himself. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Lay aside every encumbrance, right? The sin that so easily entangles us. But he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, the Alpha and Omega, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You think you had it tough? He ran that race. But he looked beyond all the difficulties of it to the finish line. And he is there now for he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When a runner finishes a race and when a runner wins a race, there is a blue ribbon for you. There is honor and glory. And many a high school champion knows about it. It is fleeting, but it feels so awesome, you know, for a trimester or a quarter or so. To be the man of the school, because you were a city champ. It's fabulous. Cheerleaders are so impressed with you. They bring you even more cookies to leave in your locker and say, Lee, you're the man. 
But there is a finish line and a prize and a goal that is so far beyond every earthly honor and prize. Our finish line is not abstract. It is a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you run a 100-yard dash, you don't stare at your feet and you don't look at the other runners to your right and left. What do you look at? That line, which will come in 9.5 seconds. And with every exertion possible, with every cell in your body, you strain and pump and stride and hurdle yourself down that track in your lane to throw your body over that line that you may be the winner. But when I look at my finish line, I don't see somewhere over the hilltop or somewhere over the river. I don't see the man upstairs. I see Jesus. And Jesus is saying, come on. I already ran this race. I showed you how to run it. I'm your player coach. Come on, Lee. Stride, stride. Don't look over there. Straight ahead. Focus, boy, focus. Run like you mean it. The author and finisher of our faith is our finish line. We are to consider him. Verse 3 says, consider him. He had obstacles. Consider him who has endured with hostility, such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. To run this race to win takes heart. So let me conclude. I really did run track and cross country. And I just could never do this sermon without just indulging in a little illustration. Because it's all true. It's not preacher stories. It's true. (laughs) So when I was in junior high school, my best friend was Brian Stanley. And his older brother, Steve Stanley, was about three years ahead of us. So he was in high school. And he ran cross country for the Nathan Hale Raiders. He wore silkies. And as little eighth grade punks, we watched all of that and we knew about how they often won the city championships at school. And me and Brian thought, man, someday when we're big boys and we're in 10th grade, we're going to go across the street from our little sad junior high to that high school and we're going to run for Coach Brock Hogle for the Nathan Hale Raiders. And we will run cross country. We will. Oh, yeah. It was a dream with which we were obsessed from the age of 13 onward. So I used to pretend I was a runner. And in the streets of Seattle, I would go out all by myself with my baggy jogging sweats and I would run up Lake City Way and across 85th and down to Green Lake and around the lake and try to picture myself as being a real contender. Well, we all graduated from junior high. We went to high school on that first summer. We showed up early for some sign-ups for cross-country, and we became part of the team, and we were on JV because we were lightweight, weak, spindly, sad little wannabes. 
But in our hearts, we had the dream. Do you know in Coach Hogel's office, there in the locker room, was a huge sheet of plywood with the stats from every city championship race going back to when the school opened up in 1966. And do you also know that six out of those nine years, the Nathan Hale Raiders were city champs out of 24 or 27 high schools in Seattle? We often won. So in the winning years, there was kind of a star up there where it said 1966 and 67 and 69 and 71, 72 and 74. And below it were the names of the guys on the winning team that year because in cross country, the first five boys who get better than 15th in the city score for your team and the lowest score wins. And so there you would see it those guys' names on Coach Hogel's Hall of Fame board. So here we are, 10th grade, spindly, weak, looking at that board and just saying, someday my name will be on that board. And it drove us on through 10th grade, through 11th grade, into our senior year. Coach Hogel was such a slave driver that we not only ran cross-country in September, October, and early November, but he expected us to also be part of the 500-mile club and keep running through November, December, January, and February and run 500 miles through the winter, which is hard to do when it's snowing. But, you know, if you're a raider, you run. And then he expected us to run track, even though we're cross-country guys, and he owned us. He expected us to run track and run the mile or the two mile or some of us even the 220 or the um, quarter. And then in the summer, to get ready for cross country, we all ran 10 to 15 miles a day, half in the morning and half in the evening, five or six days a week all summer long to get ready for September 1st after Labor Day for cross country season when the real work started. Can you imagine such foolishness? And yet this captured my heart for five years of my life. If you want to understand anything about me, know this. I learned patience and endurance. I learned to have heart. Yes, I was in Boy Scouts. Yes, I did my homework. Yes, I was in a rock band. Yes, I dated girls. But those things, nothing compared to cross country. So our senior year, we're all on varsity. Me, Brian Stanley, Jeff Haas, Chris Parent, Gordon Buchart. I still know their names. We still post pictures on Facebook if you care to look. It's like, get over it, boys. It's been 42 years. (laughs) And we come to our senior year, and it's like, okay, man. This is it. This is the year in which we shall indeed need to be awesome. And we have seven weeks of a season, and we're going to go to that North Division race, and then we're going to go to the All-Metro Championship race at Woodland Park Zoo of Seattle, Washington. Well, we ran all summer. We were in good shape. I mean, we were, we were works of art. Our bodies were sculpted, <laughs> tanned and sculpted, and this was the 1970s. 
We all had long hair parted in the middle, looked like Andy Gibb. Every single one of us, just a living God. I say that tongue-in-cheek, you know, because I'm doing church here. But really, mostly, we were highly stressed because we didn't want to fail, not a one of us. And in our workouts, man, we ran like the wind. We ran till we threw up with every fiber of our being. We exerted ourselves in quarter-mile trials where we'd run 10 quarters with 90 seconds rest in between them and get our averages down to like 68, 67, 66, 65.5 seconds per quarter mile average. For distance, guys, that is booking. Every single one of us could have run a mile under four minutes and 30 seconds. Every single one of us. In fact, that spring when we had the four-mile relay, our school lapped the second-place team. Lapped them. That's embarrassing. And uh, it came time for the big race at the end of the season. My folks had been divorced for five years, but my dad came to that race. He knew how much it meant to me. And so we all got on the starting line. We took off our sweatshirts and sweatpants. We had our silkies and our spikes. And our hearts were thumping on the line, ready, set, go. The gun went off. And all seven of us, with our little tightly wound bodies of muscle and bone, threw ourselves down that course, around the trees and up the hills and over the hills and across the creek. My dad was there halfway through the race. Go, Lee, go. Come on, man. This is it. And I'm thinking, man, this is it. I'm so stressed. Like, I cannot fail. If you didn't score 15th, you didn't get on the board. And I got to the end of that race, and the last half mile of that race is uphill. It's really cruel. But if you go to Woodland Park Zoo and go across the little bridge to the general... Um, picnic grounds and stuff. You can see this course still. And um, So I'm running up this hill and I'm thinking, all right, Lee, five years of preparation for this moment. Like, get yourself up this hill to the finish line. And I found myself very tired. <laughs> In fact, I think I had practiced too hard all year long and I'd probably physically peaked the week before where my time was like fourth in the whole city. And so I'm running up that last hill and guys started passing me. One, that's not good. Two, three, seriously? Four, five. And I'm like, no, you know, slow motion in my head. And with all I had, my tired little legs, I crossed the finish line and I fell down at the finish line. Had no idea how I placed. So guess what place I got? 15. <laughs> By the hair of my chinny chin chin. 
I could have done so much better. But at the end of it all, I was satisfied. All five of my buddies, we were all on that board. Nathan Hale Radies, Metro City Champs, 1975. Pretty great. But I'm older now, and I know. All that stuff was really good for me. I learned some great moral and social lessons in those years. Some psychologically, even some spiritual things. You know. Coach Hogel just died this year. And he hasn't been at that school for a long time. I, I doubt if that board is even there and nobody remembers Brian Stanley or Lee Kisman or Jeff Hawes. Like, seriously, who cares? Like, grow up and take off your letterman's jacket, kids. <laughs> but God in heaven has a scoreboard that is so perfect and glorious. He cares what we're doing. He cares if we try. He cares if we have heart, if we trust and if we believe and if we obey and if we're focused. And he calls us all to live a life worthy of the gift that he gave to purchase us from our sins and trespasses. To pull us up out of our miry pit of sin, out of the clay and set us on solid ground. On Christ the solid rock I stand. And in that life, you have a potential that is God-given and spirit-empowered to do anything that you want to if you will. Will you even try? Will you show up on race day and give it a go? Can you see the glory set before you for having run intentionally and for his name like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured all things? And now where is he? In the highest place of honor. And there I want to be with him so that on that final day, he says, little Kissman boy, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Could have done more, but not bad. You kept on the course. Now, I actually have some idea what my course is. Do you? The greatest challenge and privilege that you have in all your life is to know and figure out and discern what your marching orders are from the Lord Jesus Christ. And once commissioned, serve, run that race, focus on the prize. You will never regret it. Whatever you choose to leave behind, have done with lesser things. Rise up, O men of God, right? That's the song we sing. You'll never care for all eternity that you set aside those lesser things. The encumbrances and the sin that so easily entangles us. We live in challenging times and, and, and the distractions are immense, but the opportunities are greater for the church to be the church and to radiate the glory of God and to shine brightly as a light in the midst of this dark and perverse and crooked generation like those shining stars against that dark backdrop. If we will rise, 
to the call and to the challenge and the opportunity. It will shout to this generation. There is more to life than possessions and power. Right? Let's pray. Dear Lord, you know every one of us and you can't count the number of hairs on our head. Thank you for your mercy and grace that called us out of foolishness and ignorance in years gone by. For the clarity of your word, which is so beautiful to us and reveals your will and your character to us. Thank you for sending such a savior for us, so merciful and kind. I pray that you powerfully stir every one of us in the depths of our heart to seek you diligently, to inquire of you about what is appropriate for this time in our personal life, for this church to inquire of you and ask, dear Lord, what is your will for us to do in these days in Shawila? So that we will be like clay in your hands, Lord, and that you can shape us and mold us and make us to what you want us to be in our own generation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.